Again, it's great to see you guys today. Thank you again for worshiping with us. Today we are in week two of our sermon series called Faith That Works, where we're exploring the New Testament book of James. And last week we introed our series a little bit, and what we talked about was this idea that James has a challenging message for us, a message that's going to make us uncomfortable at times, and we are people that like to be comfortable. So why should we approach James at all? And what we, just, what we found out is that God, because he loves us so much, because he is so powerful, he knows the best way we should live our lives. He cares enough that he wants to lead us into joy. And ultimately, because of those things, following his way will lead us into the best life possible. Now this week we're diving right in. James wastes no time in getting to the hard stuff. We're talking about trials. But before we dig in really deeply, I want to ask you a question. How many of you have ever asked yourselves, why me? Why me? Why is it that I'm going through this particular hard time? Why is it that that teacher of mine doesn't like me? Why is it that I keep getting passed over for that promotion over and over and over again? There was a time in my life where I asked that question. It was about five years ago. It was right about the time when my daughter Rosalie was born. This is a picture of Rosalie right here. Aww, isn't she cute? <laughs> At least I think so anyway. So she's healthy, she's doing great now, she's a spunky five-year-old sweetheart. But for a time, early in her life, she was not particularly healthy. You see, five years ago, at the time I was working in the corporate world, I had planned it all out. We were uh, inducing for Rosalie on a Saturday morning, so I get done with work on a Friday. We go in, the procedure goes well, everything goes well, she's delivered fine. In fact, it was so normal, I guess if uh, delivery is normal, it was so routine that my wife and I were actually talking about how our experience at that hospital wasn't as great as the experience in previous hospitals. So everything was normal, everything was good, until we brought Rosalie home. And then she stopped eating. Now, if you've ever had kids, or if you know someone who does, early in life, the first few weeks and months of life, a child has to eat a lot. They eat every two, three, four hours. They have to put weight on quickly to sustain their body's growth as they continue to develop. Well, the first 24 hours that we were home, Rosalie didn't eat. And so we were thinking to ourselves, oh no, what's wrong? So my wife, Amanda, she takes Rosalie to the doctor. The doctor immediately says, no, 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 no. She's got to go to the emergency room. She takes her to the emergency room and thus initiated a 12-day trial where Rosalie was in the hospital, losing weight, not able to eat and keep food down, and nobody could tell us why. And in that moment, both Amanda and I were asking, why us? Why me? Why do we have to go through this trial? Why is it that this has to be our story? Trials are no fun. Trials are hard. But there's a purpose to trials. And we're going to see that today. James has an important message for us about why we face trials and why as we do so we should approach them in a particular way. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We're going to be in James chapter 1. 
If you don't have a Bible, I'd encourage you to either download one on your smart device or you can follow along on the slides behind me. James chapter 1, starting in verse 1, it says this, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Now anytime we approach the Bible, this particular book that I'm holding in my hands, it's important that we understand the right way to view it, or else when we read it, we might not understand it. So this book is actually not just a single book. It's a collection of a lot of books written by multiple authors over the course of thousands of years. And the beauty of the Bible is that regardless of the fact that it was written over such a long period of time by different people, is that God still divinely inspired those writers so that what we have in our hands now is the divine, the flawless Word of God. But nonetheless, we still have to take care with the way that we read it. One reason is because there's different kinds of books, different styles of writing in the Bible. So one that you may be familiar with is narrative or stories. If you've been in church before, you might remember some of these. Noah and the ark, that's a story. Does anybody know that story? Moses and the parting of the Red Sea, that's another narrative style of writing. But in addition to narrative, there's a lot of other types of writing as well. You have legal documents in the Old Testament. You have poetry. You have songs. And then in the New Testament, you have some narrative, but you have a different type of writing as well called epistles or letters. Now, letters are unique because a letter is always written from an author to a particular person or a particular audience. James is a letter. It was written by a particular man to a particular group of people. And you can't just read a letter straight faced for what it's worth without understanding who it's written to and who the one is that wrote it. So let me give you an example. Pretend like I am a teacher and you're another teacher. If I send you an email and I say, this particular student needs to be a part of our ESL program, you might know what that means if you're a teacher. But if you're an outside looker, that acronym won't mean anything to you. You'll say, ESL, what, what does that mean? You have to understand what it is to be a teacher, what ESL actually stands for, which is English as a second language. That's an example. So for us to really dig into the message of what James has to say, we've got to understand who he is, which we unpacked a little bit last week. James is the younger brother of Jesus. That would be a position I would never want to be in. You're constantly having to measure up to God. Right? Why can't you just be like your older brother Jesus? Like, oh, okay, once more. And James is a little bit of a late bloomer. James didn't follow Jesus until he saw his brother raised from the dead, but once he did, he was all in. He had tremendous passion, deep desire and love for God, and that flowed out in his life. He prayed like no one else prayed, to the point that his knees were sore and calloused. We talked about that a little bit last week. He was not soft in his message. He was an intense hero of the faith. But he also wrote the book of James to a particular audience. So let's look back at verse 1 here. The second half of verse 1 says this, To the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. So there's two pieces in here. The first is to the twelve tribes. The twelve tribes refers to the twelve tribes of Israel. This would have been Jewish converts to Christianity. Christ followers who were Jewish in terms of heritage. 
But the second piece is this, to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. That scattering among the nations, it's important to understand what that means. So I'm going to walk you through a little bit of the history of what happened right after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is raised from the dead. He spends a short time with the disciples, with the apostles, continues to teach them, encourages them, this is the way you should live, that you should spread my message of the gospel. And then he ascends into heaven. But before he does that, he promises that he's going to send a helper. He promises he's going to send the Holy Spirit to come down and to help guide the church as it's being birthed in its infancy. So Jesus goes up to heaven. The disciples all gather around. They're praying together. They're seeking God together. And then in Acts chapter 2, something amazing happens. The Holy Spirit comes down and everything changes. People are all of a sudden speaking languages other than the one that they knew. They're all of a sudden healing people. People are coming to know Jesus in droves. Jesus, oh, excuse me, Peter actually gave a sermon where 3,000 people started to follow Christ. Now, as a preacher, that's a pretty intimidating thing to follow, right? 3,000 people turned to Jesus Christ. And the church exploded. And for a short time, the church experienced tremendous prosperity. The message was going out. People's lives were being changed. But nobody was really oppressing Christians to this point until a man named Stephen came on the scene. Now, Stephen, he was a follower of Jesus, but he was not going to be bullied. So a group of the Jewish religious leaders, those that had been opposing Christ during his ministry, they come up to Stephen and they start to argue with him. Stephen gets right in their face and says, no, you're wrong, and here's why you're wrong. You're a bunch of hypocrites. And so what do they do? They drag him outside of town and they murder him. Then in Acts, that's in Acts chapter 7. Then Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says this, On that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered through Judea and Samaria. Now, I want to take a minute and kind of talk through this idea of persecution. So we experience persecution as Christ followers, those of us who are convinced, we experience persecution in our daily lives. But we also experience it in a particular way because we live in 21st century America. And one of the beautiful things that we enjoy in the United States is that we don't have to fear oppression from the government for our particular religious beliefs. So we can worship here publicly, in the open, without the threat of the government coming in and shutting us down. So the persecution that you and I might experience is if we're praying in a restaurant, we might be looked at funny by our waitress. Or if we're reading our Bible at work, we might get scolded for wasting time. Now, I'm not trying to minimize that persecution. That's very real. But that is completely different than what we're talking about here. The early church, the Jewish church, they were beaten. They were murdered. They were stripped of their homes. They were robbed. It was awful conditions. It is almost more like what I would consider Holocaust-like conditions. The Holocaust was a time when Nazi Germany, they would go door to door, and if someone opposed their particular view, they would drag them out and beat them, use violence to try to turn them, or worse, kill them, ship them off to concentration camps. That's more of the image of what's happening to the early church. It was terrible conditions. 
It was so bad that most, many people, many Christians had to leave their homes and move to a different country. Now, the primary reason that people move in the United States today, the reason that most people move homes, actually has to do with your neighbors. Now, I have great neighbors. I've had good neighbors in the past, but I, I can't get my head around having neighbors that I dislike so much that I move. Right? And maybe you've experienced that, and that's okay. That's not wrong. But it's hard to sell a house. It's hard to pack your stuff up. It's hard to move. It's inconvenient. It takes a lot of work. I can't imagine the situation being so bad that I can't just move to a new house in the same city. I can't move to another part of the state. I have to move to a new country because of how bad the persecution is. And that is what the Jewish people are dealing with. Fear, constant fear, loss of sleep, poverty, your business is left behind, you've lost all your possessions, mourning and sadness because your family members are being brutalized. And this is the audience that James is writing to. Let's continue in the text. Starting in verse 2, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So James, he, he lays out kind of this three-part argument of, of how to handle trials, how to handle bad situations, and we're going to dive into that in just a second, but I have to ask the question, the elephant in the room question, what is James smoking? Who does he think he is? We just talked about this audience. These are people that are suffering, that are hurting, and the first thing he says is consider it joy? He didn't even say, I'm praying for you. He didn't even say, like, I hope you get out of it. He doesn't even say, be strengthened in the Lord. He says what? Consider it joy? It makes you think maybe James doesn't have the right perspective. But in actuality, he does. In actuality, he knows what he's talking about. This joy is something that is attainable. But sometimes when you're looking at a concept like having joy in trials, it's better or it's, it's more helpful in understanding it to understand what it isn't. So what James is not saying here is for the Jewish Christians to become masochists. Right? A masochist is a person that derives pleasure from self-inflicted pain. He's not telling the Jewish people to do that. He's also not telling the Jewish people to put on a fake smile. He's not telling, to be, uh, telling them to be unauthentic. He's not saying pretend like it's not there. I was meeting with someone earlier this week who attends here, and he was telling me that a little bit ago, he and his wife were driving to church and they were fighting. And as soon as they got to church, they were walking in the building and the team member that was greeting them at the door said, hey, how are you doing today? And the guy said, We've been fighting the whole way to church, actually. And I thought to myself, how refreshing is that? <laughs> it's not, nope, we're good. Everything's great. It was, no, we're fighting. Things are hard. Life's tough. How refreshing would that be, church, if we could be like that? If instead of putting on the fake smile, instead of saying things are awesome, we could say things are terrible. 
Life is hard right now. James is not saying for them to be fake. What is he saying then? Well, James is simply saying this. He's saying to consider joy when you're going through trials because that joy provides you something. It gives you something in the end. Let's read verse 3 together. Because, this is the reason why we should go through trials with joy, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And so what happens then is we have these difficult times, and out of it, if we overcome these trials, we get this beautiful gem called perseverance. And perseverance, the idea here is toughness or strength or grittiness, and it only comes when we overcome trials. And it's such a beautiful, such a rich idea here. As we go through trials, it tests our faith and we get perseverance. And the beautiful thing about God, this is again another, another element of God's character that's just so wonderful and so beautiful. God designed us in such a way that when we go through hard things, in every area of our life we get stronger. So let's, let's uh, do a, a quick example here. So how many of you are marathon runners? And I know at least one person in the room is because I saw him earlier. Right? Not many people. I really don't understand that. I'm just being real. Like running... No, not, we're just not going there. So if you run a marathon that's running 26.2 miles. Now, in order to actually run a marathon, you have to train for it. You have to put your body through trial in order to get strong enough to do it. Because I don't know about you, but if I tried to run a marathon, I'd get like a mile and I'd keel over and die. Maybe not quite that bad, but... Running 26.2 miles takes effort. It takes work. You have to build up to it. And what happens is when you run, when you exercise any part of your body, as you're putting stress, as you're putting trial onto your body, your muscles begin to break down. You have small tears in those muscles. But what happens is, is when your body recovers, the beauty of the way that God made our body is that not only do those tears get repaired, but they actually get stronger each time. And so the way that you run a marathon is you start by running a mile, and then you run two, and then you run three, and then five, and then ten, and so on, until you get to 26.2. It's a beautiful thing that God created, that we constantly are growing as we go through trials. And the same thing is true in our lives. The same thing is true for us spiritually and emotionally, that when we go through hard stuff, if we overcome it, we get the benefit of that added strength. Now, there's a particular word that I've been using, and that is this idea of overcoming a trial. You see, if you face a trial but you quit, if instead of running a five-mile training day, I get to the end of the block and I decide I'm too hungry, or I'm too winded already, I don't get the benefit of the additional strength. You see, we actually have to go through the trials in order to gain the benefit that God promises us. And what happens? Let's continue in verse 4. Let perseverance, this beautiful gem, this beautiful thing of perseverance, finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. 
God desires for us to be complete. He desires for us to be mature. And there's really two reasons for that. One is so that we're more effective in using his name, proclaiming his name, using the gospel to change lives. That's one side. But the other side is, is for us to know the greatest joy in life is when we are complete in him. So not only are we more effective, not only are we making disciples in a better way, but God actually draws us closer to himself. And ultimately, we experience more joy. We experience pleasure. We experience the best that God has for us. And so, kind of the way that this works then is you have these trials, you have these hard times in life. They produce perseverance, this beautiful gem that comes to us, which leads then to completeness. So what that means is if we want to be complete, we have to go through the trials. If we want to be God's best, if we want to experience the best life possible, we have to go through them. But that's hard, right? I didn't like it when Rosalie was in the hospital. I hated it. Trials are uncomfortable, man. But if we want that completeness, what it is that God desires for us, for our lives, we've got to get tough. We've got to go through those trials in our lives. Now, how do we do this? How do we get tough? I hear you, Pastor Jeff, that sounds great, but man, getting tough is hard. I don't like doing that. So what do we do? How do we make this a part of our lives? Well, there's a couple things that we need to do. The first thing is that we need to lean into the trials. Look, I, I don't know where you're at today. You might be in the middle of a trial. Maybe you're in a situation where you just lost your job. Maybe you're having trouble making ends meet. Maybe you're not on speaking terms with your spouse. Maybe it's something else. Maybe school's bad. I know school hasn't started, but maybe where it ended, maybe your friendships are tense. Maybe you're in the middle of a trial right now. But also, maybe things are going great. Maybe things are going awesome. Well, there's something that we need to understand. Trials are a natural part of life. We're going to go through them. We're going to go through hard times. Looking back at verse 2, it says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials. Not if, not in the unfortunate circumstance where. It says when. It's coming. And my hope is that for you, you will lean into the trials, that you will lean into the hardship, and that through that, God will refine you, toughen you up, so that you can be the best that you can be. The first thing we got to do is we got to lean into the trials. John 16, 33 says this, I have told you these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. What a great truth. That even in the midst of our trouble, God has overcome those troubles. We can do this. We can lean into the trials because God is with us. And that brings us to the second thing that we need to do, which is that we need to ask God for help. Continuing on in James chapter 1, starting in verse 5, says this, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault. Isn't that awesome? That God gives generously when we ask without finding fault? I don't know about you, but sometimes when I keep asking God for help or I keep confessing the same sins, this, 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 I'm thinking God's getting real tired of me asking. 
But you know what? The text just said that he doesn't find fault. God loves us so much. He desires to pour out his wisdom on us. Let's continue. And it will be given to you. But when you ask, this is for wisdom, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all that they do. I think it's interesting here that James is recommending that we ask God for wisdom. He's not saying ask God for strength. He's not saying ask God to get you out of it. He's saying ask God for wisdom. And that wisdom, this idea of wisdom in this context, is to understand that what I'm going through is leading toward my completion in God. That it's leading toward my maturity in Christ. Toward me being the best that God has for me to be and me enjoying Him more so than I ever could without. Now there's another piece to this, verses 6 through 8, that talks about doubt. And doubt, we don't have time to really fully unpack this idea of doubt today. But I do want to make a couple comments about it. Doubt is a uh, kind of a taboo subject a little bit. I struggle with doubt from time to time. I think all of us struggle with doubt from time to time. But what, what he's saying here is I don't think, I don't think he's saying here that we have to have a perfect faith. I don't think that that's what he's saying. What he's saying is rather that as we have doubts, as we're seeking God, we need to put our chips in God's court. Instead of saying, you know, I'll, I'll have God out here as a last-minute resort. I'll pray to him if, if my other means don't work. That's that double-mindedness, living two different ways. He's saying we've got to seek to put God first. We've got to seek to have him in our mind. There's a good example of this in Mark chapter 9. It says this, Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me to overcome my unbelief. What's happening here is a man goes to Jesus and he says, My son is dying. I need your help. I need you to come and save him. And Jesus asks him if he believes. And he says this, I do believe, but help me overcome my disbelief. My unbelief. Doubt is a real thing and it's a real struggle. But when we put our chips in God's court, when we ask him for help, when we actually believe he can do it, then he'll grant us that wisdom to know where we're at in our trials. And it'll help to toughen us so that we can be complete in him. The third thing that we need to do is we need to admit that we're not okay. We need to admit that we're not okay. I, gotta, I have to confess to you, I am not always okay. I'm your pastor. I know some people think the pastor should have it all together. But sometimes I'm not okay. My wife, my family, and I have been through a season of trial over the last several months. You see, when we left Crossway Church in Germantown, Wisconsin, we were happy. We had friendships. We had great relationships. We were doing impactful ministry. But God had a different plan. And he put us in trials, and I, there were times I wasn't okay. But you know, some really cool things happen when we admit that we're not okay. Some really neat things happen. One, it puts us in a position of vulnerability. But vulnerability doesn't mean that we're weak. It actually is a sign of courage. It's a sign of bravery. It allows other people to come around us. 
I talked earlier this morning about our life groups that are coming up and the importance of being a part of a life group. A life group is a great place for you to plug in, where you can be open, where you can be not okay. Our experience, even in the midst of the trial of moving here, has been amazing because of what so many of you have done, which has come around us when we've been honest about not being okay. And that's the beauty of it. When we admit that we're, okay, that we're not okay, people come around us. It's a sign of our strength. It's a sign of our trust in God. There's a great quote from a study done at the University of Mannheim in Germany. And it's about this idea called the beautiful mess effect. And what the beautiful mess effect is, is this idea that when we share with others that we're not okay, when we show the truth and we're, we're vulnerable with other people, that it's actually more of a sign of strength, more of a sign of courage. It says this, even when such examples of showing vulnerability might sometimes feel more like weakness, we feel like we're weak when we admit we're vulnerable, when we show vulnerability from the inside, our findings indicate that to others, these acts might look more like courage from the outside. If we're willing to be vulnerable, if we're willing to say, I'm not okay, I need some help, come around me, that's what the church is about, that's what Gateway is going to be about, we're going to be a place where people can come here and be vulnerable and be loved, not judged not cast out. And in that moment, we get tougher. We have people around us. We get stronger. We get more effective. We become catalysts for life change outside of these walls when we care for each other inside. And that's my hope for us, church. That as we go, that as we seek to get tough, as that's sort of our challenge, that we will engage these three things. That we will lean into the trials. That we will ask God for help. And that we will admit when we're not okay. That God might do a mighty work in our, in our time and in our midst. Because He will. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for this truth. Thank you so much that in spite of our trials, in spite of the hardship in our life, God, that you still use it. I'm thankful, God, that you don't waste pain, that you don't waste hardship, that you don't waste heartbreak, but you use it. You use it to make us stronger, to help us influence and, in, and impact the world around us. I pray, God, that we would be a tough congregation, a tough community of faith. Tough because we walk through these trials. We lean into them, Lord. We ask you for help, and we lean on our brothers and sisters in Christ to help us. Be with us, God. Use us in a powerful and in a mighty way to impact your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.